Many Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Unveiling Culture and is the ninth teaching in our First Corinthians series. It was taught by Molly Conaway and Caleb Gilmore on November 13th, 2022. Thanks for listening. Hello. Good morning. Good to see you all. Welcome to our talk show. This is like a dream come true. I've always wanted to be a talk show host. Uh, no, we're glad you're here. Um, we are in week nine of a 15-week study of a New Testament book, which is actually a letter called 1 Corinthians. Um, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to take a break for Advent, uh, and then we'll hop back in to finish it off. But 1 Corinthians is this letter to an early church uh, in Corinth. Uh, the author, Paul, is kind of haphazardly writing letters to this church, um, receiving letters from this church, responding to questions and issues and disagreements that are happening, kind of like Dear Abby letters. Uh, and the church was dealing with a lot of issues. Uh, there were disagreements all over the place uh, about what was going on, about how to live according to the ways of Jesus under the social, economic, um, political world they found themselves in. So uh, the Corinthians were some of these earliest followers of Jesus, which means, and I don't know why this like blows my mind so much, but it means that they didn't have like the written gospels to figure out how to live according to the ways of Jesus. They had to do that by listening to and receiving advice and wisdom um, from teachers like Paul. And so uh, things that Paul has brought up in the past, the Corinthian church was taking advantage of their freedoms uh, at the expense of others in the community. Uh, this letter has hit hard the idea that Christ does not seek power or control, uh, that the very nature of God coming into the world like as a baby uh, to live and be crucified is actually the opposite of power and control. Like it's a really weak and foolish plan, actually. First uh, Corinthians 1, right off the bat, Paul says, For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So we keep bringing up this uh, weakness of God, foolishness of Christ stuff. And today, in 1 Corinthians 11, it takes kind of a turn. And this letter starts talking about the order of worship. Uh, so what happens, uh, issues that are happening when this Corinthian church comes together uh, and meets for worship? These are the issues that are coming up. Um, this is like people fighting about the church carpet uh, or like the old ladies are fighting in Sunday school again, these kinds of issues. Um, and you should know right off the bat that this teaching or this, uh, uh, well, this teaching is also weird, but this scripture that we're gonna talk about is very weird. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Caleb and I are doing this together. Uh, essentially, every commentator, every scholar has a phrase like this about 1 Corinthians 11. This is Richard B. Hayes. He says, more than any other passage in this letter, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 presents severe problems for the interpreter. The first principle that, we, that should be applied in our reading of this text is the principle of hermeneutical honesty. So hermeneutics, kind of the way we read scripture. We should never pretend to understand more than we do. Like every commentator has that about this section. Nobody really knows what's going on. Um, so that's why we're kind of doing this, like, I don't know, what is this, coffee house, uh, talk show, news anchor, news anchor <laughs> fireside chats. Yeah. Um, because this is weird stuff, and none of us practice what we're about to talk about in this text today. Uh, I'm also the boss, and I just said we were going to do this together. Oh, so. I thought it was, 
I thought I was just going to sit here and lend credibility to the oh, teaching. Yeah, yeah, Is that yeah. not what? That's what I okay. That's what I need. Yeah. Did I get that wrong? Yeah. No. Anyway, none of us, none of us apply what this scripture talks about today. Uh, and you'll soon figure out we're about to spend the next like 20 minutes talking about one article of clothing. Uh, and that's really weird. And <laughs> your curiosity has peaked. Which article of clothing are we oh, going to okay. talk about for 20 minutes? No. Uh, let's read what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. He says, uh, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. Now, some of you guys have been with us for like eight weeks studying this, and you know Paul is starting off with this really nice line, celebrating them for something. And uh, you got to know that what's getting ready to come next is this word, but, right? Like, we've all gotten those emails, right, where uh, somebody starts off by saying, hey, thanks, hope you're doing well, uh, really enjoyed whatever you did, but I have, and then the rest of the email is essentially a complaint. That's what we're going to see happens here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. We're just going to read through this entire passage and just kind of let it all wash over us first, okay? Any man who prays or prophesies or teaches with something on his head shames his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled shames her head. It is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so You know, man, like birth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so man get, comes from woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if man wears long hair, it is dishonoring to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, if you don't agree with me, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Scene. Okay, so now you know why we're really here together, why we are both doing this teaching, this passage that is weird to read. Um, and as I look around the room, I am noticing, with the exception of maybe a toboggan because it's finally cold now, the distinct lack of head coverings. Oh, Maria. Thank Good you. Job. Biblical woman. Over She's going to pray later, so that's why. <laughs> um, what, what is going on in this passage? Um, basically, this passage is about what happens when the church in Corinth gathers together in worship as a community, both men and women, just like we're doing here. And Paul is clear here uh, that men and women are both engaged in the gathering, right? They're both praying, they're both prophesying, they're both taking part. Um, and this word prophesying, as I mentioned, is probably closer to preaching. Um, this isn't like necessarily some kind of ecstatic experience. Um, but it's worth pointing out that whatever else Paul says here or in the rest of this letter, 
he does assume that both men and women are playing an active role in the speaking of the community. Like they're both praying, they're both prophesying, and Paul, in case you didn't see it, does not anywhere in this part of the letter tell them to stop. Um, Can you say that again at, for the people in the back? <laughs> Crystal, you got that back there? At least okay. here in this letter, Paul does not say that women need to remain silent and have no place praying or speaking in community, okay? Uh, the issue for Paul here isn't with the, necessarily the gender of who is making the address as if that's inherently a problem, but how men and women are dressed when they make that address to the community and to God. Um, and so the issue is whether or not women uh, should wear headdresses or veils when they speak, uh, which for Paul is really a cultural issue. Uh, how, how does the culture that Paul and these Corinthians find themselves in, how does that interact with or overlap with the kingdom of God? When does that culture mesh with the mission of what the church is trying to do, and when does that cause an obstacle? And before we get into this conversation, uh, I just want to point out that I think the word culture is just overused uh, for some kind of thing out there that we all pretend to understand, but nobody really knows what they mean when they say it. I actually, I had a grad school professor who would um, subtract points from papers if you use the word culture. Uh, and so, um, because he would just, he would cringe at it. He said, it's too vague. We don't really know what we're saying when we say the word culture. So we're about to use the word culture a lot in this teaching. Um, so Lee Camp, if you're listening, which you aren't, just go with it. Name-dropping name Lee Camp yeah. there, okay. Um, anyway, the, the author David Foster Wallace, who I did not have a graduate school class with, uh, <laughs> told, this, told this parable um, in a speech at Kenyon College. Uh, he, he talks about this little story. He says, there are these two young fish uh, swimming along, and they happen to come across an older fish swimming the other way. He nods at the two younger fish and says, morning, boys, how's the water? Two younger fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and says, what the hell is water? <laughs> the point of the story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. The idea of culture, the stuff that we participate in on a daily basis, we are mostly unconscious to. We don't think about it, we just do it. Pointing out water to a fish is the same thing as pointing out some of the things that we do in our culture on a daily basis. We're just not aware. And that's true of our passage today, the one that we just read. It's true for us trying to understand this ancient cultural context of 1 Corinthians. But I want to suggest that it's also true for Paul in his argument about the head coverings. I think Paul is clearly trying to get the Corinthians to conform to a cultural idea in their worship gathering that really doesn't specifically come from a biblical text. And Paul will use the Bible in the course of this, but the idea about head coverings is not specifically from Scripture. Paul's not making that argument from a mandate from God, but he thinks it has implications for how these people are living in the kingdom of God in Corinth. Um, so our task this morning is not to give like this full explanation of what water is or to dissect culture or anything like that. Um, we're mostly just trying to be aware of this culture, uh, where we are day to day. And so Paul wants these Corinthians to fit in culturally uh, when it comes to gender distinctions 
when people are speaking in the worship gathering. So what are the Corinthians thinking? Why are they getting rid of these veils? What's going on here? And it's my understanding that like the head covering, what they're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of like a hood. So it's like they had the garment and then the hood would come up probably. over. That's yeah. probably what they're talking about. So these were a traditional gender marker for women. Um, one that symbolized femininity, uh, one that would symbolize their inferior status to men, one that would also symbolize both modesty and availability. Uh, so they would wear these head coverings, and if they had them on, it would clearly communicate that they were taken by under authority of a man, uh, that they were not open to solicitation. Uh, sometimes the lack of a head covering could refer to prost or be associated with prostitution. Um, and I think it's important to remember that this is a really big culture shame uh, society uh, and a very communal, familial one at that. So discarding a traditional gender marker like this um, could have brought shame not only on the woman, but on her husband, on her father, on the whole family as well. We don't really think that way anymore, but I think it is important to remember the implications of some of this stuff. Yeah, just for like a, an example from the ancient world, there's this uh, scene in a play called Lysistrata by the Greek playwright Aristophanes. And, and there's this scene that shows the cultural power of the veil. Um, and in this scene, Lysistrata is making this impassioned speech before a magistrate. She's in this public setting. And uh, she gets really passionate, and she uh, tells the magistrate who is interrupting her to shut up. And his reply is this. Me? Shut up for you? A damned woman with a veil on your head, no less? I'd rather die. You, you can see the masculine attitude towards the veil, right? <laughs> Lysistrata, her response is great, though. If the veil is a problem for you, here, take mine. It's yours. Put it on your head and then shut up. And at this point, the veiled magistrate falls silent because he has been shamed by donning the woman's veil. So clearly, the veiling of women isn't just the simple matter of wardrobe or fashion. Uh, there is a cultural kind of shame attached to this. Um, and that's not necessarily stated explicitly in Paul's letter here, um, but it, it, it is probably in the subtext. That's me, <laughs> in the subtext. Yep. Um, so while, you know, it's, it's hard to think about the Corinthian women uh, making this conscious decision, they were making a conscious decision to take off their veils, uh, to discard this traditional gender marker of the day. But this wasn't like insubordination. Um, this is not like an equal rights political protest. Uh, so why are they doing this? Um, what's actually happening? To understand, we need to go to an, another passage in Galatians, another letter from Paul, where Paul says this. This is Galatians 3. But now the faith has come, but, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And so we said before, other parts of 1 Corinthians, other issues that have come up in this church, is the way the Corinthians have taken their freedom uh, a little too far at the expense of others in their community. So what's likely happening here um, is that the women, when praying, when prophesying, when teaching, 
are acting in their freedom and power of the Holy Spirit uh, to remove their head coverings as a sign of their freedom in Christ. Like, it's possible that this was an intentional reflection on these women's uh, devotion to the message of Christ, that their attempt to honor the freedom that they were given, as Paul describes in Galatians 3. Like, they are trying to live out this theology of neither male nor female, all being one in Christ Jesus. Um, but apparently, uh, their actions were causing issues, uh, otherwise Paul wouldn't be addressing it. Um, it would be helpful to know what the exact issue was. Uh, we don't have the letters that were written to Paul. It would be helpful if we did. Um, but you can imagine the letter that was written to Paul to say something like this. Hey Paul, we, like at our church, are trying to maintain the traditions you taught us, uh, that we learn that there, in Christ there is no longer distinction between male and female. So when we come together for worship, the women are playing an equal role as men, but an argument has arisen because some of the women, when acting in their freedom and power of the spirit, have begun removing their head coverings. And some of the more timid conservative members of the community don't agree with this and think it's a disgrace that the women would let down their hair in public. Some of us think you'd be okay with this practice. It is a visible sign of truths you've taught us in the past, um, but could you like clear this up for us? Uh, so for Paul to actually say, like, no, actually stick with the head coverings, um, it's possible that th that came as a surprise to this church community. Right. And, and I'm interested in, like, why Paul argues for them to embrace this cultural value. Because elsewhere, we've seen Paul sort of dismiss larger Roman values. When we studied the context of marriage, Paul seems to be bucking the Roman marriage ideology that was prevalent throughout the society. So why does Paul argue for sticking with the veils here? Um, so we, we have to kind of go back and look through some of the things that Paul says here to these Corinthians who are radically interpreting this baptismal confession of no longer male or female in Christ. And, and Paul starts off with this argument um, that, that sort of shows this hierarchy that he sees in the world. Um, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Paul essentially is saying, this is kind of the order of the world. This is how it works. There's God at the top. Uh, there's Christ, who is, uh, uh, you know, below God, not necessarily theologically, you understand, but, um, and then men who get their authority from Christ, and then women who are under the authority of men. And so his argument is that when men veil their heads, they shame their head, the person above them, Christ, God. And when women don't, they're shaming theirs, not just their literal head, but also potentially their husbands. And so essentially, improper headdress for Paul in this passage is a lack of order. It's about chaos. It's about a loss of distinction in a way that in the world that they're living in makes the church look bad. It makes them look like they don't understand how the world works. That's what Paul seems to be saying. He continues. He says, uh, For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Okay. So Paul's argument here is actually where he starts to bring in a Bible verse. And he's quoting or sort of alluding to uh, this creation story that we read about in Genesis chapter 2. Um, the story there describes how God had created the first human after he had created like most of the earth, but not quite all of it. And um, this is what it describes there. 
says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust or the clay of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So creation in this story is like a two-step process. God first creates the form of the human. This, uh, in Hebrew, it's Adam. And uh, it's made out of dirt or clay. And it's just a lump of earth until God breathes into it, until God animates it with the life force. So God takes this Adam creature, Adam, and sets it in the garden called Eden. And Adam works the land there, but it turns out it's a lot to do, and he needs help. So this is what Genesis 2 says. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is not a teaching on Genesis. We could get into a lot of all this. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but essentially, just pay attention to the fact that God is making this helper, according to this text, for the man, right? God and Adam then line up all the animals that have been created, and thankfully for us human beings, none of them turns out to be just right for the human, um, and, and so something else has to be done. It says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So this is where Paul is getting his ideas, right? That man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's alluding to this story. That woman was not made, uh, that man was not made for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is, this is where he's getting these ideas. Um, and in this creation story, God makes the first man and then the woman who is the helper. Um, and this is the story that Paul is being shaped by. His, his vision of divinely ordained hierarchy comes from this story in Genesis 2. But there's a problem, because there's more than one creation story in the Bible. Uh, there's, there's a creation story immediately before Genesis 2, in Genesis chapter 1, and in that story, the creation of humanity, both male and female, happens at the same time. Genesis 1.27. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So which creation story has it right? <laughs> Paul's, Paul's theology here is dominated by the creation story in chapter 2, but seems to neglect the theology of the first story where both men and women are created together in God's image. And so whether Paul knows it or not... Uh, whether or not it was because he was swimming in the water of first century Judaism, Greco-Roman society, Paul prefaces, privileges the Genesis 2 story. And, and we see this uh, playing out because for those of you who stayed awake during philosophy class in high school or college, um, you may remember the name Aristotle. Um, Aristotle has a very similar view of the world as Paul here. Um, in, in his book, Politics, he argued that both the nature of women and slaves were intertwined, that they were destined to be subservient to men. Um, he, he talks about the union of men and women being for the good of the continuation of the species. I don't think we would disagree with that. Um, but in this pairing, in the same breath, he talks about the union between those, quote, naturally suited to rule and with those who are inherently inclined to be ruled. 
And this was a natural hierarchy for Aristotle, right? In the same way that Paul sees the gender dynamics between male and female as being natural. Um, he said that humanity was superior to animals, quote, even as the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The male the ruler and the female the subject. This is water. This is the water that Paul is swimming in. Both Aristotle and Paul say the same thing, that this hierarchy is natural. It's, it's what we depend on for our society. But Paul is also bringing in the Bible. Paul's also bringing in Genesis chapter 2. And so, yes, Paul does have a Bible verse to back him up here, but it's only half the story because we also know about Genesis 1. And his choice of story is driven by the male-dominated cultural view that he happens to be in at the moment, like Aristotle. Uh, New Testament scholar Anna Miller writes this. She says, The fear in the ancient context, this context that Paul is writing in, was that if the lines between male and female were blurred, social order would fall apart and citizenship would cease to be meaningful. The gender difference Paul evokes in 1 Corinthians 11 suggests that women's speech is not just different, hence the need for the veil, but a source of disorder, even dangerous disorder for the community. I mean, so, I don't know. I just feel like it's the women that hold things together. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably know. true. Uh, but, but, but notice that, I mean, what Paul is concerned with here is order. He's concerned with this order that he thinks points all things to God. Whether or not he's aware of that order also being part of his culture is to be determined. Um, but this debate between Paul and the Corinthians isn't just about a Bible verse. It's about whether or not social order would fall apart if these cultural distinctions weren't upheld. If the veiling of women, pun intended, were shed. Um, and I think Molly should tell you about the next reason that Paul gives in his argument. Yeah, this is probably my favorite verse of the whole thing. It's also the weirdest. Um, I mean, everybody chuckled when we read it. Uh, it's verse 10. It says, For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You know, like it's like Paul's running out of excuses and has to go like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's because of the angels. I mean, it's like when I am like trying to get my kids to do something and I have to just go to the like, listen, it's just because I said so uh, line. It's like I actually think I might take Paul's um, line here and like, why do I have to clean up my toys? It's because of the angels, son. Um, <laughs> It's just thrown in there. It's bizarre. We don't get any hint of what he's trying to say with that line. Um, it's likely that Paul is referring to something that we see in Jewish literature, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, about this assumption and belief that angels or these spiritual beings were part of the worship gathering. Uh, that present in their midst when they gathered for worship were these um, spiritual guardians, these uh, heavenly dignitaries. And so whether Paul was trying to say, hey, we don't want to offend the angels, uh, we don't want to offend these like spiritual beings that are in our midst, uh, maybe he could have been saying, hey, he was afraid of like these heavenly spiritual beings punishing the disorderly conduct somehow. Uh, we have no idea. Paul just thought it was necessary to, you know, throw that one in the argument. It's like, when in doubt, it's because of the angels. It is, it, it is, though, like all jokes aside, just another indication of how different Paul's culture is from ours. And again, why there are no head coverings in this passage or in this gathering right now. Um, but after this, after this comment about the angels, Paul picks back up on this, this argument about things being from nature, um, this hierarchy being natural. 
He says, judge for yourselves, which has to be ironic, right? Because they obviously are already doing that. Um, Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is dishonoring to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So I just want to point out my own bias as I read this. I I think it's important that we point out the natural language that Paul uses to try to justify this. Because personally, this is where I feel, as a 21st century reader, Paul's argument kind of collapsing in on itself. Um, And that's because of the cultural water that I swim in. Uh, Paul says that nature teaches us that men have short hair and women have long hair which is kind of ridiculous, right? <laughs> because the only way that you can have short hair is Looking if at you, you get Jensen. it cut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Paul says that nature teaches us these things, but, but if everyone let their hair naturally grow out, it would not be a, a place to distinguish gender. You wouldn't be able to tell someone's gender based on their hair. But also, Paul says that women have this natural head covering, which is their hair. So why an additional head covering would be needed seems, I don't know, unnatural? <laughs> uh, and these are, these are the kind of critiques that my culture teaches me to make, to be suspicious of like naturalizing arguments that people are inherently a certain way. So that's just where I come from. But Paul doesn't seem to be aware of this danger. Paul doesn't seem to be aware that naturalizing arguments are bad or perhaps biased. And I thought this would be a good time to interject um, a really important part of my story. Uh, and also something I learned this week while doing the research for this. So when I was 16 years old, I got my first job at Krispy Kreme Donuts. Uh, I hated it. I lasted three weeks. Uh, so I quit at Krispy Kreme and went to go work for uh, an establishment called Berean Bookstore in Bloomington, Illinois. I think we have a picture. It's Berean Bookstore in Bloomington, Illinois. Um, it was a Christian books and gifts store. Uh, I, w- I, was gonna wor- I worked at this place all the way through high school. So even I even came back and worked a little bit in college. Uh, it was filled with books and gifts and uh, all kinds of Bibles. Uh, it was owned by the apostolic Christians in central Illinois. Um, there were precious moment figures. There were these breath mints called testaments. Raise your hand. Has anybody had a testament? Yeah, okay, um, good, good. I think the weirdest thing that we sold that I remember is there was this like plush tie dye cross. So, like a stuffed animal, but a cross <laughs> that was tie dye. We sold those things. Anyway, while I worked at Berean Bookstore, um, I had to wear a long sleeve uh, black shirt and a khaki skirt that went down to my ankles and closed-toed shoes. I mean, the closed-toed shoes. It was dangerous out there. Those commentaries. Is that why? Paul, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, But part of my job at Berean Bookstore in Bloomington, Illinois, uh, was when someone came to the customer service desk, uh, I would meet them there, and if they asked for it, I would pull out this special binder from under the customer service desk and go through it with them. And on each page of this special binder um, were these lace head coverings. Um, I was 16. I had no idea why these people were wearing these, um, but I was really good at selling them. <laughs> I would look through one by one with these ladies and help them pick out their head covering. It's, the, the lady that I worked with there like, wasn't even a Christian, and so I'm sure she was like, even so confused. Um, that's all. That's the story of my childhood or something. That was it. In other news, <laughs> in other news this week I found on Etsy, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, Etsy shop. So um, 
you can see, this is based on this passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, you can get veils and accessories for prayer. Uh, and again, you can see that line from 1 Corinthians 11 on that. Interestingly enough, this is from El Paso, Illinois, which is also like 30 minutes from where I'm from. So um, I think that that's all. Yeah. I think that's all I have to say. Well, I mean, I think the point of that is that while we may like sort of scoff or look at this as though it's some outdated piece of uh, scripture, there are still communities for whom this text is uh, actively practiced among the people. And, and it comes from not only a different culture, but different ways of reading scripture. Um, and so based on that, based on your story, especially Molly, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious how you read this, not only as a woman, but also as a woman whose job it is to pray and prophesy or teach uh, in, in, a, in a gathering like this as your job. Yeah, and you first asked me that this week, and I think originally I had a hard time getting past the like historical cultural context of this. It's just like, okay, this mattered then, doesn't matter now, like let's move on to the next chapter. Uh, I do think it's affirming that there was no question about whether or not the women could teach or be leaders in the church or whatever. Um, but I also, this week, I kind of realized that I don't actually even like calling Paul a misogynist here because I don't think he was any different than any of the other men of this culture and at this time. I mean, women by no means were equal to men in this culture, in this ancient world. Like, why should I expect Paul to be any different? I think Paul was concerned about the unity of the church. I think Paul was concerned about the sustainability of the church, um, both in ways that went along with like the cultural context and ways that didn't. Uh, and so I can respect that. Uh, I can appreciate that. And I, you know, I might be trying too hard to like save Paul uh, here or stand up for Paul. Um, and why do I need the feel, feel the need to do that? But I don't know, I, I think that my view of this is pretty consistent with how I view the whole women in ministry thing anyway, which is um, mostly that it's just a battle that I don't want to fight, um, that I don't really care to fight. Uh, I'm so glad that there are, and thankful for people who are fighting that battle, um, doing the research and the advocacy work uh, for women in ministry roles, otherwise I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, I've just never felt like that's my work to do. Uh, I kind of decided a long time ago that I'm just going to do the pastor ministry of Jesus, preach the gospel thing the best I can. Um, and if that's a problem for somebody else, there's plenty of other people that they can talk to and other faith communities for them to be part of, especially in this town. <laughs> um, but I actually think that the way... I actually think that the out, that outlook for me and how I view women in ministry was pretty consistent with these women in Corinth. I don't think actually that they were trying to like smash the patriarchy. We're going to remo remove our veils, show them. I just don't think that that was even in the realm of possibility or thought for them. I could be wrong. Um, I think they were just trying to sing and speak and pray and preach alongside the boys the best they knew how. Um, and according to what Paul has already taught them, that there is no distinction between men. I think, I think they were trying to do their best, and I do get mad and annoyed and irritated uh, that they were then told they weren't like doing it right. Um, but I'm also not surprised. Like That's just kind of how it was. And this is kind of a trippy thought um, and total speculation on my part. I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, but I think if Paul were alive today, and, and we decided here at Crossings, downtown Knoxville, that like the women were going to be required or expected to wear some kind of head coverings or long khaki skirts or like turtlenecks or something, I don't know. Um, I think that Paul would have had harsh words to say about that. 
uh, about what that communicates about who we are and what we believe to the broader community. Um, like, I think it might totally be flipped on its head. If, pun, that was, that was good, that was a joke. Good pun. Thanks. Um, but if you apply Paul's theology uh, to, to today. So that's where I'm at. Um, that could change uh, tomorrow, I don't know. I, I just read this and I don't really interpret it to say much to me about me and my role, uh, as much as it has something to say about all of us being conscientious about how the world perceives what's going on within the faith community. Um, and I think we're gonna ask some of those questions in a minute. Yeah, just before we do though, I just do wanna point out that I think Paul and just about everybody would be really upset if we all had to wear turtlenecks. Um, Probably, yeah. But uh, in case you haven't kind of gotten, we've been in this uh, study now for nine weeks, and if you haven't gotten the gist of how we're handling this series, we're not offering a ton of answers uh, authoritatively. Um, not because we don't have answers, but we just think that there are better questions that we could be asking. Um, and. And it's not that we're afraid of giving answers. It's not because we're cowards and we don't want to speak up for the truth and defend something. Um, it's because these matters that we're dealing with here, not just, not just like veils or, or gender issues, but the intersection of culture and faith are messy and complex issues that everybody experiences differently. Um, and so the question that I had for myself this week, the question that I want to pose to us as a community is what factors motivate me to read this passage or any passage in the Bible a particular way? Why do I want to read the Bible this way? Uh, and so when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, the specific issue that we're dealing with here, I think there are at least two different kinds of readings that we could perform. I think one option, which people argue for, is that Paul is kind of a progressive, like for his day here in this argument, um, Paul does not, as we've already mentioned, prohibit women from speaking in the congregation. At one point, he says, nevertheless, uh, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. Like, they go together. We need each other. Like, Paul seems to be advocating for some kind of, like, egalitarian way, some equal view of men and women in the gathering. And we could explain all of this, like Paul's particular advice here, as being primarily concerned about the church's reputation in the ancient world. It's not that Paul really thought that women needed this or that it was really the way things were, but that in order for the church to, to be on its mission, the way that it was intended to be, this particular issue would have hamstrung the church's larger goals. I, that's certainly one way that we could read this. But as others have done, we, we could be ashamed of Paul uh, for not taking a more radical, liberating stance on gender in the church, right? Like, we've seen kind of how messed up these Corinthian people are. Some of the people in their community are doing some really weird stuff. But it, it's kind of uh, ironic to me that it's here in this passage that they seem to be having, like, the more uh, liberated view of this Galatians 3.28, this, this kind of reading that we would want to perform today, right? And, and that we find ourselves butting up against Paul here. Uh, we could point out, right, like as I kind of did, that Paul seems to be parroting with Bible verses the Greek notions of gender and hierarchy in which women can speak, but their speech needs to be mediated or, or marked by some kind of physical representation like a veil, uh, which really ultimately could only symbolize a status of being less than. And so in some sense, we could say that Paul is caving 
to the cultural pressures. Like, we hear that argument today, that certain people are caving to the cultural pressures. I mean, this is what Paul's doing here in some sense. I, I think, too, that that is a valid interpretation, one way of reading this passage and critiquing Paul. So my question isn't which is right. Uh, my question is, what draws me to one of those two interpretations? What is it that I want out of reading Paul this way? Why do I want to rescue Paul from the charge of misogyny or cultural appropriation? Is, is my view of Scripture at stake? Is, is there something behind that that makes me want to pick that? Is there something that I need to save in Paul because he doesn't line up with my cultural values? Or when I want to condemn Paul here, when I, when I clearly see that this is not the way I want to live my life, and I want to praise the Corinthians for their interpretations, is it because of my 21st century post-enlightenment culture that rewards me for having that perspective? Is that why I want to read the text this way? Do I, do I need the Bible to validate my values? And so I, I need to find some kind of middle ground. Like, why do we read the Bible a certain way? This, this is the water. This is the culture that we don't think about when it comes to the way we read the story of God. And so those are kind of my questions. Those are the ones I want to sit with. I think my big question coming out of this that I referenced earlier is how much of our faith, uh, how much of our faith principles and decisions are led by dominant culture and perspectives, uh, good or bad? Uh, how much of our faith then has to be countercultural uh, or bucks what is dominant in culture? And I just want to like say that like even... The, the dominant culture idea that we hear some people say is, wh who defines dominant culture? <laughs> dominant culture could change if I drive 20 minutes north from here. Uh, so based on my zip code in Knoxville, dominant culture probably means something different. Uh, who defines that? How is that relative? You know, like, what do we do with that? Yeah, and I think the question is, how do we know when the culture, so everybody, the way everybody else is living, is right, uh, and when aren't they? Uh, when should we buck that? What outside perspectives and opinions do we care about or don't we care about? Um, and, and can this change over time it is a lot of the question I, I'm wrestling with with all of this. So there's plenty of questions for you uh, at lunch um, to think about, talk about. But it's interesting, today's section of 1 Corinthians speaks about an issue surrounding something we have discarded, uh, that we don't apply to our time and place. Um, which is interesting because next week the Corinthian church struggles with an issue surrounding something that we do and talk about every week uh, that's just as weird as head coverings if you think about it. Um, it's about a practice of coming around a table uh, called the Lord's Supper um, where there's this bread that represents the body of Christ and there's this wine that represents the blood of Christ. Um, both things that remind us that God came to be human and engage in all of the like mess and vulnerability and complexity of, that comes with being human. Uh, and we couldn't handle that. Uh, we couldn't handle that kind of weakness or foolishness from a God. And so we killed him, but God refused to give up. He refused to forget the love that he had for his people, his creation. So he reaches into the grave and brings Christ back to life. And he reaches in the grave that we dig for ourselves every day and the graves we dig for each other every day and bring us back to life again and again and again. That's the story. That's our story, the ones that we so often forget. 
And so we come to this table then to enact and participate in that story, uh, to remember that. Uh, and it's weird. Like the world probably thinks that this table is really weird. Um, and we do things like this also to make this space different than the other spaces that we find ourselves in. Um, spaces that don't have a story like this to ground themselves in. And so where things like head coverings may communicate something to those in the outside world um, that we wouldn't want to communicate, things like this table, inviting people to pull up to a seat to be part of a story of hope and healing and justice and inclusion and restoration and new life, like that's a compelling narrative to draw people into. And that's what we're here to do each week. Uh, in a world so desperately looking for a good story to find themselves in. Um, and so we are gonna do that together. Um, you are welcome to come when you're ready. Uh, we do have gluten-free crackers uh, and grape juice. If you don't want the wine, just let us know. Um, but yeah, come when you're ready.